pray this morning? Oh, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of honor and glory and praise because you are the Lamb who is willing to sacrifice everything that our lives can be new. We gather today and we hear again the good news that you are alive. What an amazing statement. You who are dead now live. Father, we pray you would just live for this time in this room. Live in the minds and the hearts of those who have gathered this morning to worship and praise you. Live here that our lives might be complete and full simply because you're present. We ask for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat this morning. Remember, it's uh, kids' camp time, and so if you want to take a young person to kids' camp, feel free to do so. They're welcome to stay here as well, and uh, while the band takes the seat as well. Well, if you were uh, with us on Easter, uh, you you heard the uh, topic of what this uh, series is is about, what it's called, uh, the wake-up call, right? And uh, I shared with you the last week that you know that's one of the things I kind of enjoy when I travel. This is small things in life you enjoy, right? One of those things I enjoy when I travel is leaving that, that wake-up call and you get that great voice, you know, good morning, Mr. Sir, this is your wake-up call. It's always pleasant and nice. But you know what? I discovered something about wake-up calls. As absolutely great as it is to get that nice voice in the morning that, that just says, you know, good morning, Mr. Sir, this is your wake-up call. As great as it is to get that, eventually you put the phone back in the cradle, Okay. And then you have a tremendous decision to make. Is that wake-up call going to make any difference or not? Or are you just going to kind of roll over, go back to sleep, and convince yourself, well, I'll wake up on my own at the right time. Tell me, how does that usually work for you? Right? Absolutely. I mean, isn't that the risk of the wake-up call? I mean, you get the wake-up call, and you get the good news, it's time to get up, but you've got to make a decision on whether the wake-up call is going to make absolutely any difference in your life, or whether you're going to just kind of roll over, go back to sleep, just go back doing what you were doing, and hope that things work out and you get up at the right time. I mean, how many times have you rolled over, gone back to sleep, and the Lord wakes you up, or something else wakes you up, and you look at the clock, and you say... Shucky Dern. Well, maybe you don't say that, but, right? Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? I don't have enough time. How will I get there in time? And you become frantic. What? You know how it goes. Am I the only one in the room that's ever had that experience? Come on. You're in church. Be honest. Right? Okay, here's the deal. Last Sunday, this room was packed, and we all got together and said, It is awesome. Jesus is alive. It is our wake-up call. Jesus is alive. He who is dead is now risen. This is fantastic. The question is, did it make any difference for you last week? And will it make any difference for you for the rest of your life? Because you answered that wake-up call. Or did you just put the phone back in the cradle and say, well, okay, there's another Easter done and the ham was good and the cranberry sauce was fine. And You see, the question for us is to know and believe and have our lives live out and act upon this fundamental truth 
that Jesus is alive. And this truth is vital to our faith. This truth is absolutely crucial to our moving forward in life, in living that new life that God wants us to have. Let me take you to the Apostle Paul as he wrote to uh, the church in Rome. He says, We know that death no longer has any power over Christ. He died and was raised to life, never again to die. Now, notice those first two words when he, what he says there. Did he say he speculates? Does he say he kind of thinks maybe so? Or does he emphatically say, look, this is something I know? You get it? And he's saying, look, I know this. I know. I know that now death has no power in this world over Jesus or over me. I know. I know because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I know my sins are forgiven. Why? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I know that all the promises that God has made to his people will absolutely come through. I know that all the promises that Jesus Christ has made over my life, I know those will come true. Why? Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. You see, this resurrection, this wake-up call is fundamental to our faith. The Apostle Paul would make that so clear when he wrote to the Corinthians uh, and reminded them how this is absolutely vital to us and without it, without it, our faith and our lives become useless. Look what he says, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Unless Christ was raised to life, our faith is useless. You see that? Unless he was raised from the dead, our faith is useless and you are still living in your sins. And those people who die after putting their faith in him are completely lost. You see, the wake-up call is crucial for us. It's crucial for us to know and understand that he who is dead is absolutely alive. It makes all the difference in the world and in our life and in our faith. We know. Now the problem is, in our broken world where the evil one is loose and the villain is trying to do his best, we also know that there are going to be people out there who are going to try to convince you that the resurrection is not true. The world is going to work overtime trying to convince those who are far away from God to stay far away from God. And this whole stuff about Easter and Jesus rising from the dead, it's just not true. What I want to do today is take some time to just walk through the evidence. Just walk through the evidence of the resurrection. Just look at some of the reality. Look at some of the theories that are being promoted out there to try and counter and take the resurrection away. And just look at the evidence so by the time we're done this morning, you can see clearly and with Paul you can say, look, it, I just know this is true. I know the resurrection is true. And what's cool about it is this is what God invites you to do. Because it's true. Because this is the activity of God. God invites each one of us to just take the time to look it over and examine the evidence. If you go to Matthew 28, which is the text we used last week to announce the good news that Jesus is alive. Remember the angel came down and he threw that stone aside when the women were there? Remember that? Remember, look what the angel had said to the women. It's, uh, the angel said, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was nailed to a cross. He isn't here. 
God raised him to life just as Jesus said he would. Now look at the next words the angel said. Come, see the place where his body was lying. What is the angel inviting those women to do? Check it out. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? Check it out. Come Come on. Come on inside. Walk in the tomb. Pick up the linen cloths and see the blood stains on them. Do whatever you need to do. But just come on inside. Check it out. Look it over. Examine everything. And come to your conclusion that what I'm telling you is absolutely true. He is alive. You see, God wants us to have not just faith, but He understands we can also have intelligent faith. We can have faith based on the truth of what we see and understand and therefore what we know. And the angel invites us into the tomb. He invites us. Examine it. Look it over. Check it out. Look at the evidence and come to your conclusion so you will know. You will know the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's do that. When the women went into the tomb... You know, the angel invited them in, and, and later on a couple of apostles show up, and they go into the tomb. What was the biggest problem that they discovered when they went into the tomb? Well, the biggest problem was something was missing, right? What was missing from the tomb? Yeah, his body, right? Jesus was missing from the tomb. I mean, the grave clothes were there, and the napkin over his face was all wrapped up, and The spices were all still lying there. But what was missing was Jesus' body. The fundamental thing about the resurrection is that the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. So now you have to stamp back and say, well, okay, how did that happen? How in the world did the tomb come to be empty? Now, those who want to draw you away from the truth, who want to draw you away from the truth of the resurrection, well, they will postulate some theories. So, for instance... One theory that's very popular out there is the theory that says, well, here's what happened. Jesus didn't really die when he was on the cross. Right? That's one speculation, is that, that what happened is that when Jesus was on the cross and he didn't really die, he just kind of slipped into a coma. And so when they took him down from the cross, his limp body, they thought he was dead, but of course they weren't medically equipped enough to know, and so... They didn't have him hooked up to any machines or anything. And so when they took him down, they thought he was dead. And so they took his body and they put it in the tomb. And when they put it in the tomb, the tomb was cold and it was moist. And so his body then was able, after three days, to just revive. And he became alive. You ever hear that theory before? Guy wrote a big article with that, with that theory. Okay. All right, you ready to examine it? You ready to think about this a minute? All right, let's think about this a minute. Uh, first of all, remember that these women who are coming there, they have been with Jesus this whole time. They saw him being crucified. These women have been there when his body was uh, taken down from the cross. They were the ones that were probably wrapping those strips of cloth around him. They were the ones that were probably there when the 100 pounds of spices were put there. They were the ones that also saw that that one-ton or two-ton stone was rolled in front of uh, the tomb. They also knew the Roman seal was on the tomb of the governor, and they also knew that there was a cohort of Roman soldiers assigned to protect the tomb, probably up to 16 Roman soldiers. Now along comes the theory that says, well, 
he didn't really die, he just slipped into a coma. Okay, if you're going to follow this theory, here's what you have to accept. You have to accept that Jesus, who just three days ago was flogged by the Romans to one lash away from death. By the way, the Romans, they were really good at this. I mean, they knew what they were doing, okay? They are really good at this. So this guy who was flogged repeatedly to, in, to within a, a hair's breadth of death, this guy who was also hung on a cross, and before they took him down had a spear thrown into his side to create a gaping hole, after three days of lying in a tomb, was able to wake up, unwrap all of those claws that he was tightly bound in, push aside 100 pounds of spice, step up, walk over to a stone, and from the inside, roll the stone away, and then overpower 16 Roman soldiers to escape. Are you with me so far? Is anybody wondering about how this happened? I mean, think about this. Are you, are you, are you serious about this one? This guy who was beaten to within an inch of death, we know, who was, you know, his body was ripped apart three days after three days of rest, would get up and be able to accomplish all of this? I mean, I play a baseball game, and I need three days just to get out of my recliner. Right? And he would be able to do this and then go further. This also means that not only did he then escape from the tomb, but this person who was a miracle worker and a teacher who was known in all that region, who hundreds of people followed, who when, when he was on one side of the lake and he was going to the other side of the lake, people on the other side heard he was coming and they flocked to go listen to him. It means that he was never heard of again. Right? He just walked out of the tomb and disappeared. Now, some folks would say, well, okay, I get you, but, you know, he could have thrown the stone aside because, after all, he did all these other miracles. Well, that's right. He did all these other miracles because he was the Son of God. So follow that one for a minute. So the person who is trying to lead me away from the truth and have me understand a whole different theory over here is now telling me that it's okay to believe that he's the Son of God when it comes to rolling the stone away, but when it comes to turning water into wine, well, no. You follow that one? How much sense does that make? See, the reality is, the problem is, Jesus walked out of the tomb and the body was absolutely missing. And that's not the biggest problem with this theory. The biggest problem with this theory comes out of Mark 15. Mark 15. A man named Joseph of Arimathea was brave enough to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was highly respected, a member of the Jewish council, and he was also waiting for God's kingdom to come. Now watch. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. And he called in the army officer to find out if Jesus had been dead very long. After the officer told him, Pilate let Joseph have Jesus' body. Who confirmed that Jesus was absolutely dead? Not a follower, not a disciple. Who confirmed that he was dead? A Roman soldier who was responsible to see to it that he was dead. 
Who did he confirm it to? The ruling governor. Now, I don't know a lot about Roman soldiers, but I know this. You don't lie to the governor. You don't lie to the governor and hope to survive. You see, these Roman guys, they were really good at this execution stuff. They did it all the time, and they were really good at it. And so if a Roman officer comes in and stands before the governor and tells the governor, yep, he's dead, guess what? He's dead. See, the truth of the evidence is that Jesus didn't fall into a coma. He died. And the Roman soldier and Pilate would confirm the truth that Jesus simply died. Okay, are we done with theory number one? Ready to go theory number two? Theory number two. Theory number two of those who would try to get you away from Jesus would say, well, okay. It wasn't Jesus who did it. It was those disciples. Those scheming little disciples. They did it. They went to the tomb and they overpowered the guards and they took Jesus' body. All right, follow this one for a minute. If you buy into this concept, you're also buying into a reality that goes like this. These guys who are Jesus' followers, these disciples, their profession was what? Fishermen, right? They were fishermen. So what you're telling me is a group of 12 fishermen, oh, take one away, 11 fishermen, a group of 11 fishermen who the Bible tells us right after Jesus was crucified, were hiding away, locked inside a room in fear. These guys got up the gumption to put together a plan to attack a cohort of Roman soldiers, up to 16 Roman soldiers, who were hardened, battle-worn soldiers, who were gladiators trained in the instruments of inflicting pain and death. These 11 fishermen attacked those Roman soldiers. And in the process, even though the soldiers were skilled in their craft, not one fisherman was wounded, not one fisherman was killed. And they all went back and hid back in the room again. Does this sound like a plan? Oh, and then on top of that, on top of that, they not only stole the body, but then they hid it away, and for the rest of their life, for the rest of their life, they kept it an absolute secret. Hello? How good are we human beings at keeping secrets? They kept it an absolute secret, even when they too were being crucified and beheaded and flayed and all the things that happened to those disciples, even though they did all those horrible things to them. Not one of those 11 guys told the truth that the body had been stolen. Need more? Then, if you're still with that theory, you also have to come up with a solution to the dilemma that after Jesus' body was missing, the leaders of the Sanhedrin called those Roman soldiers in and sat down with them and said, What happened? And soldiers told them the truth about what happened and the Jewish leaders said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spread a rumor. You tell everybody that the disciples came and they stole the body 
and we're going to give you a lot of money to make sure you tell this story. And don't worry, we'll make it okay with Pilate, the Roman governor. All right, let me follow this through now. The disciples stole the body, but the Jewish leaders paid off a whole bunch of Roman guards to tell everybody that the disciples stole the body. Does this make sense to you? You see the dilemma? You see the dilemma? You see the problem with all these theories is ultimately the body of Jesus is gone. The bottom line for the resurrection is Jesus is gone and there's no rational explanation for anything that would explain it away except the truth that he was raised from the dead. There was a uh, attorney who is in the uh, Guinness Book of uh, World Records as the most successful uh, trial attorney in history. His name was Sir Lionel Luckew, and he won 245 murder cases in a row. Now, to just give you perspective on that, do any of you ever remember Perry Mason's show? Are you all too young for Perry Mason? You must see the black and white reruns at least, huh? Right? So, I mean, the, the incredible Perry Mason. Do you know that in the Perry, making the Perry Mason, Mason show, after he won 70 cases, the writers of the show said, oh my gosh, he's got to lose a case, otherwise he's not credible. So he won 70 in a row, and then they made him lose a case. Otherwise he wouldn't be believable. This guy, Lucku, he's documented as winning 245 cases in a row. Does, does he seem kind of credible? Pretty credible? Yeah. He looked at the evidence of the resurrection at the age of 63, and he did not believe in Christ at that point. He was questioning in his life. And so he sat down and he looked at the evidence of, of the resurrection. And after doing that, uh, he wrote uh, these words. I've spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer in many parts of the world. I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And of course, what did he do? He accepted Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? So this guy looks at the evidence and he understands the truth that Jesus was raised. All of the theories that would try to prove otherwise, they just don't cut it. So let's flip the page. You ready? If you flip the page and you start thinking about, okay, what is the evidence then that we Christians who, who know the truth, what's the evidence that we can turn to? Because you're going to run into people in your life who are trying to, going to question your faith and they're going to, going to question this whole resurrection thing. How, how can you respond to them in a way that is both loving and yet brings the truth uh, to them? The biggest, uh, the biz, biggest truth that we have that proves to us the resurrection of Jesus Christ is simply the number of eyewitness accounts that we have of Jesus appearing after the resurrection. It's just absolutely overwhelming. If you go into uh, John 20, you've got Mary Magdalene. You go into Luke 24, you've got the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Uh, you go into John 21. You've got the disciples uh, uh, who are fishing, and they come ashore, and here's Jesus with lunch uh, all on the grill for them, ready to go. 
Um, you've got instances throughout the whole scripture that point to people experiencing the resurrection of Jesus. Some of them we know very well. We know the experience when the disciples were hiding in the room and everything was locked and Jesus comes and appears to them. It's in John, John 20. The disciples were afraid of the Jewish leaders and on the evening of that same Sunday, they locked themselves in a room. Suddenly, Jesus appeared in the middle of the group and he greeted them and he showed them his hands in his side. But of course, somebody was missing. Guess who? Thomas, right? Thomas was missing. So one week later, one week later, the disciples were together again at this time. Thomas was with them. And Jesus came while the doors were still locked. And somebody stood, and he stood in the middle of the group and he greeted his people, his disciples, and said to Thomas, put your fingers here, look at my hands, put your hands into my side, stop doubting and have faith. What is he doing? He is giving these disciples the physical evidence to be able to say, look, just check it out. Put your hands here, put your hands there, and understand I am alive. Now, if you need more evidence than just those simple eyewitnesses, the question I'd ask you this morning is, usually how many, how many eyewitnesses does it take to convict somebody of some crime? I mean, in our court system. What, a couple eyewitnesses? Three? Four? Maybe you get lucky and you've got like five or eight eyewitnesses to the crime itself. Wouldn't that be awesome? Okay, look at the text from uh, 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul recounts this, and I, I put in bold the key sentence there. So when we get there, we get to the bold, you guys read it out loud, will you? Okay, here we go. He was buried, and three days later he was raised to life. As the scriptures say, Christ appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After this he appeared to... Are you kidding me? Did you just hear that? He appeared to how many? More than... More than 500 people. If you were an attorney, wouldn't you be doing handstands? You got more than 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is like awesome, incredible, off the charts. And Paul finishes it up and says, look, he appeared to Peter in the 12 and, and lastly appeared to me also. He puts his own personal uh, witness there. So we have incredible eyewitness testimony of Jesus appearing to disciples and followers of the faith. Okay, now I know. I know what you're thinking. I know. You're saying to yourself, Okay, Pastor, all right, but you know, all the proof that you're giving us about this, all of it comes from the Bible itself. And so you're using your own fairy tale book to prove the evidence of what you want to prove. Anybody thinking that? You don't have to raise your hand, but your friends will. Okay? Let me take you to another place. This is uh, from the Antiquities of the Jews. It was written in the first century by a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. He was commissioned to write the, uh, the antiquities. He was commissioned to write the history of the Jews. In the midst of writing that, he also wrote these words, historian. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to take 
take them to take him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. Now look at this one. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct at this day. What is the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus telling you? He's writing down the reality of the witness of Jesus being raised from the dead. You see, Jesus' resurrection happened on one day, but his appearances happened over a 40-day period. So over a 40-day period, Jesus kept showing up in the lives of his people. Acts 1 confirms that. For 40 days, it says, Jesus kept showing up. And then Peter, by the time we get to Acts, uh, toward the end of Acts 1, Peter 